Hey, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in the passage that these fine young men just read. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, while you're turning there, go ahead and find your place, Matthew chapter 1. We'll start in verse 18 here in just a moment. Uh, but as you turn there, I, I think it's fair to say that this time of year brings about a lot of different sort of feelings and emotions. Um, Several different types, right? One of those, I think, I think first there's just the general excitement that comes with this time of year. Um, there's, that's evidenced by the fact that some of you, let's do this, by a show of hands, how many of you guys have been listening to Christmas music since pre-October? Okay, somebody said July, all right? Yeah, so you guys are so excited about Christmas, you just get that, you know, six-month head start. Um, or, or the Christmas trees, I think we talked about this last week. How many guys have had your Christmas tree up for more than a month already? Not many. Okay, all right. You guys are a bunch of Ebenezer Scrooges in here. Okay, all right. Um, <clears throat> but but there's, right, there's your excitement, there's family, there's gifts, there's presents, there's food, there's time off of work. Yeah, right, time out of school. Yeah, so uh, you got that. So you got excitement on one hand, and then... Um, but maybe on the other side, there's like the tension and stress that comes with this time of year. Um, and, and we feel that in a lot of different ways. There's, I don't know about your calendar, my calendar is packed with things. Like something going on, like feels like every other night. Right? Our calendars get loaded this time of the year with parties and events and all these different things. Uh, then there's the stress and tension that our bank accounts and credit cards feel right, during this time of year. Um, right, that's always this time of year, but especially this time of year when the inflation rate is like the highest it's been since the early 80s. I was not alive for that, but I've heard it was pretty rough. Um, and then not only is there, there that, uh, maybe as you think about gathering and, and that sort of stuff with your families, um, you know, I don't, I wanna ask, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but a lot of us, like, we think of we got to go to this family gathering, and we just know in our mind there's that one family member that we're going to have to deal with, right? You guys know you've got the name in your head right now, right? Now, listen, if you don't have a name in your head right now, maybe you're that family member, okay? I'm just saying, all right? That was mean. That was rude. I won't do that anymore. Um, all right, but... So there's excitement, there's tension, there's stress. For some of you, like, like we can just span the, the spectrum of emotions here. For some of you, this is a hard season because it reminds you of, of loss, right? There's a loss of a loved one. Maybe this is the first year that you won't get to spend with a certain loved one. Or uh, maybe it's just you feel the, the fracture, kind of the brokenness that comes from, from a broken home, right? Where there's, uh, the family has been fractured for, for some reason. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways that we might feel lost in this season. It could just be that um, maybe, like in the case of, of our family, we don't live immediately around our extended family. And so some of our traditions where we once used to gather with big groups of extended family, like those look different now. So it could be a lot of different ways that you feel uh, lost in this season. Okay, But whether it's excitement, whether it's tension and stress, whether it's the feeling of loss, I would contend that there's one feeling or emotion that kind of uh, is, is most consistent and most universal 
this time of year. And that is this feeling of just anxiously waiting. Right? Just anxiously waiting. Right? And, and you kids know this. Got our kids with us this morning? Where are my kids at? Put your hands up. All right. How many guys are just waiting, counting down the days until Christmas morning? All right, a few of you. You guys need to be more excited, okay? I think in our house, we have like three or four different devices, uh, like things hanging on the wall where they can count down and move to the closer to December 25th. Um, parents, you know the feeling of waiting, right? There's waiting for Christmas morning, like you just can't wait to see the joy on your children's faces, right? Um, or maybe you kind of feel the, again, that, that anxiously waiting for that credit card statement to figure out how long it's going to take you to financially recover, right? Um, I mean, we, this is a season of, of waiting. Even if, like, Christmas is not your thing, right? Clearly it's not because some of you guys don't have your trees and stuff up, right? Even if Christmas is not your thing, uh, there's that, that moment that happens sometime about noon on Christmas where it's like, all right, I'm ready for this to be over. I'm ready to move on and get back to life as normal, Okay? So you're anxiously awaiting for just life to resume some sense of, of, of normalcy. Right? But that, that waiting and eager sort of expectation, anticipation, uh, I, I would say that that is maybe the most consistent uh, and universal feeling this time of year. And it gets me to uh, our new sermon series we're starting. So for the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be in a series called Long Awaited. Right? And, and as you can guess, we're going to be talking about Uh, Just waiting for, eager expectation for the birth uh, of of Jesus. Because Christmas has always been a story about waiting. Christmas has always been about waiting. But but it's not ultimately about waiting for uh, a thing or an idea or a specific day on the calendar. Christmas is ultimately about, has always ultimately been about waiting on a person. That's at the heart of the Christmas story. And so that brings us to our text this morning, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Since these young men just read it, I'm not going to go back and read it, but we are going to refer to it and kind of bounce around a little bit this morning. Uh, But to get us started, let me try and connect the dots with what uh, they read for us this morning. Um, The the Israelites, the nation of people that God uh, chose and, and created for himself way back in Genesis 12, um, they were anxiously waiting on a person. Right? The, the story of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament is that um, very early on they were promised a, a coming Messiah or one who would, uh, the, the anointed one is what that means, and he would come and he was supposed to be the one that would save God's people. And, and they heard this promise all throughout the Old Testament uh, and they waited for it. And what they had in mind was someone that would come and, and save them or deliver them from their uh, kind of national foes or enemies, their political, uh, governmental oppressors. That's kind of what they, they had in mind. Uh, but, but as we'll see here in a moment, God had something much bigger in mind than just uh, saving them from their oppressors, at least their, their physical, earthly oppressors. But so all through the Old Testament, they hear this promise, right? There's a coming Messiah. There's a coming Messiah. He's going to save God's people. Uh, but, but generation after generation comes, right? Year after year, decade after decade, century after century, generation after generation, 
and there's no Messiah. Right? They've waited and waited. There's no Messiah. We follow this through the Old Testament. We get to the book of Malachi. Still no Messiah. The book of Malachi comes to an end. The Old Testament comes to an end. There's 400 years of silence from God. Like no dreams, no visions, no prophetic words. God doesn't speak to His people in any capacity for 400 years. Now to put that in perspective... Right. The United States of America is, what, almost 250 years old? For 400 years, silence from God. But then, that brings us to the book of Matthew. Right? And the book of Matthew opens like this, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now I know like on the surface, like that doesn't get you amped. Like, yes, genealogy. Exciting. Unless you're like one of those genealogy people. Like I have some of those in my family, Ancestry.com, that kind of thing. Uh, right, you hear the word genealogy and you're like, I'm just going to skip past this to get to the good stuff. Right? You can be honest. We're in church. Uh, so, so on the, the surface, it doesn't sound particularly exciting, but this is a massive announcement from Matthew. And, and the reason it's such a big deal is because Matthew wrote his, his account of Jesus' life, right? the Gospel of Matthew. He wrote it to primarily uh, first century Israelites. So these are people that we pick up through the Old Testament, carry through that 400 years of silence into the, the, the pages of the New Testament, wrote it to first century Israelites who had been waiting for this Messiah. And he introduces them, uh, introduces Jesus as... Jesus Christ. Right? That's not Jesus' last name. Right? That is a title. Jesus Christ. And that word is synonymous with, just kind of a different language, basically kind of the Greek derivative of the word Messiah or anointed one. So this one that they've waited for for, for generation after generation, Matthew shows up in the first century, writes this letter to say, hey, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, this is his, this is his story. All right, in the following 16 verses, kind of trace Jesus' lineage through uh, some really familiar names, significant names uh, to the Jewish people, to the Israelites from the Old Testament, right? beginning with Abraham. Right? I don't know if you know this or not, but um, Father Abraham had many sons. And those sons had sons, and those sons had sons. And so you can follow that all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, here in Matthew chapter 1, that's what uh, Matthew does. He begins with Abraham, and he chase, chases, he traces this family line from Abraham through David, through Solomon, through kings like Hezekiah and Josiah. And he traces it ultimately to this man named Joseph, who lived there in first century. All right, so let me give you a quick summary of of the narrative that they just read, uh, and then we'll, we'll dig in a little bit. So just so to reorient us, right, quick summary. So we, we follow from Abraham to Joseph. We're introduced to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. And, and the story that Matthew gives us here in these verses is that, that Joseph is engaged to, uh, betrothed is the word, uh, to this young woman named Mary. Okay? When we think engaged, it's a little different here. Uh, to be betrothed in, in this culture, in this context, was... 
Um, it, was, it was a legally binding agreement. So they're not fully married yet, but they're like more than engaged if you're tracking with it. Right? They, would, they would enter into this commitment to one another, uh, and the marriage would not be consummated until Mary leaves her house to go live with, uh, with Joseph. But they're, but they're still in this legally binding uh, relationship. And so the tension arises when Joseph learns that Mary is with child. As you can imagine that Joseph has some questions. Right? Because at this point, Joseph... Um, I'm going to date myself with this reference. Some of you guys are going to get it. Some of you might not. Joseph doesn't need Mari Povich to tell him he's not the father. Okay? Like he's, he knows how this works. He knows, wait a second, you're with child and I'm not the father. I have some, some questions about this. But because Joseph was a just man, rather than uh, <clears throat> bringing public shame or condemnation on Mary, he resolves to divorce her quietly. That's what the text says. <clears throat> and so, um, apparently all of this was a lot for Joseph to take in, right? I mean, there's a lot happening here. He's overwhelmed. Joseph needs a nap, right? And so, um, that's what happens. Apparently, at some point, Joseph falls asleep, and he gets a vision. And while you guys think about that for a second, I'm going to take a drink of water. <clears throat> all right, so... Joseph falls asleep. He, he receives this, uh, this, this vision, this dream um, from an angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says to Joseph, verse 20, Joseph, <clears throat> son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the, the angel in this dream to Joseph makes this announcement, right? And, and I've got to imagine, like, this is a little discombobulating for Joseph, right? I mean, his, his soon-to-be wife is pregnant. He knows he's not the father, but he has this angelic dream that, that tells him that his, uh, his soon-to-be wife is with child from the Holy Spirit, like I'm just guessing, like Joseph wakes up and he's like, what is happening here? Okay, that's, that's probably a fair, a fair assumption. But, but what, look at what Joseph does. You jump down to verse 24. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So despite his his questions, despite his concerns, despite maybe his, his lack of understanding or awareness, uh, Joseph responds in faithful obedience. But where I want to go this morning, I say all this just as a summary, but, but where I want to go is, is the emphasis of the passage this morning is not primarily on uh, Joseph's dilemma. The, the emphasis is not primarily on uh, Joseph's dream, right? The emphasis is not primarily on uh, even Joseph's faithful obedience. Those are all important things, but those are not the emphasis of the passage this morning, at least when it comes to Matthew writing to first century Jewish believers. The, the emphasis actually comes in, in Matthew's emphasis on what this birth means. So listen to, to Matthew's words in verse 
22. He says, all this took place. The birth of Jesus, the announcement of his birth, the, the coming Messiah, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, Matthew announces to both his first century audience, but also to us, 21st century audience, that, that this child that was to be born and was to be named Jesus was a fulfillment of thousands of years, generations of prophecy about uh, the coming Messiah. Right? Matthew's words are an announcement that this prophecy is being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. Right? And, and more specifically, these verses that Matthew quotes, they're a direct reference to the book of Isaiah. If you go back in the Old Testament, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it in just a minute. But, but Isaiah, who's a prophet, he speaks on behalf of God to the people of Israel. He prophesies this to uh, a man named King Ahaz. Isaiah 7, verse 14. So this, is, this is hundreds of years before Jesus is born. Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so we get to hear Matthew chapter 1, hundreds of years later. And Matthew lets us know that, that Mary's miraculous conception is, uh, is the fulfillment of this promise. Right? This, this coming one, this, this Messiah. But what I want to spend a little time on this morning is to consider um, specifically the name Emmanuel. And then we'll get to the name Jesus in just a minute. Um, because when the angel makes this announcement to Joseph in the dream, he says, hey, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah's words that Joseph likely would have known. The virgin will conceive, she'll bear a son, you'll call his name Emmanuel. And so what I want to spend a few moments on is just talking about the significance of what Emmanuel means for you. Right? What it meant for them, but also what it means for us today. Right? So let's start. Emmanuel, God with us. I think the appropriate place for us to start is just to consider like the significance of what God with us actually means. I mean, we read it and we say it, but I mean, you stop and think about it, that the, the omnipotent, all-knowing, all-seeing, sovereign creator of the spoke creation into existence with his words. Even now in this moment, moment upholds and sustains his creation by the power of his word. The God of the universe stepped out of eternity and stepped into his creation in the form of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. God didn't send someone else. God showed up. God showed up. That's, that's significant. Here's, here's how Paul describes Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. Again, you don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screens. But, but Paul writes this. He says, He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then a few verses later in verse 19, he says, 
For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Right? Then the, the book of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the, uh, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So I think what I, what I want you to see is when we talk about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, like, this is not, Jesus is not like off-brand God. You're tracking with me? Like, this is not, this is not great value. Like, Jesus is God. The fullness of God. The exact imprint of God. God with us. Jesus is God incarnate. God wrapped in human flesh. Right? The birth of Jesus is the reminder that God drew near to us. Right? He, didn't, he didn't send a third party or some sort of liaison or representative. Like God himself came. He rolled up his sleeves and he got his hands dirty. And the reason I, I say that, this, this is the, the good news for you this morning, is that in Jesus Christ, in Emmanuel, in God with us, right, in Jesus Christ, God knows what it's like to be you. Ever thought about that? Like, God knows what it's like to be you. I referenced Hebrews earlier, but here's another passage from Hebrews. This is chapter 4, verse 15. The author of Hebrews writes, For we do not have a high priest, he's talking about Jesus in this context, we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You hear what he's saying? In Jesus Christ, God knows us. And he knows what it means to be human. In Jesus Christ, God knows what it means to be human. Now listen, we're quick to sort of affirm the, uh, the deity or the divinity of Jesus, the kind of the, the otherness of Jesus, as we should, because he was fully God. Right? Jesus was fully God. Right? He, he performed miracles. He healed people. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. Uh, he told dead people they weren't allowed to be dead anymore. Like, this is what Jesus, he is fully God. He is other than, but he's also fully human. And we, we kind of, we forget that, I think, sometimes. That Jesus was fully human. Right? Jesus, he understands from a, as a human, as God wrapped in flesh, he understands and sympathizes with our weaknesses, our limitations. And just consider some of the things that Jesus experienced in his earthly life as, as recorded in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I wrote a few down here. This is not the fullness of what Jesus experienced, but listen to some of these things that Jesus experienced as a human being. Jesus knows what it's like to experience pain and suffering. Honestly, far beyond any pain or suffering that you or I have ever endured. Jesus knows what that's like. He, he knows what it's like to grieve and mourn loss. The, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus knows what it's like to mourn. Jesus does not know what it's like to feel 
the shame and guilt of sin because Jesus never sinned. But Jesus does know what it's like to be tempted. Right? Matthew 4, Jesus tempted in the wilderness. He knows what it's like to experience temptation yet without sin. Jesus knows what it's like to, to do without. To be in hunger. To be in need. To be without a place to lay his head. Like Jesus experienced that in his earthly life. Jesus knows what it's like uh, to, to be rejected. Particularly to be rejected by those who, who he was closest to. Jesus knows that feeling. Maybe something that we can all relate to in this time of year. Jesus knows what it's like to be weary and tired and in need of rest. I love the passages where Jesus just, it's like, guys, I need a nap. I'm going to go lay down on the boat. <laughs> so when I, I'm just going to tell my wife this afternoon when I need a nap, I'm just trying to be like Jesus. All right? What I want you to see, though, is that Jesus is able to identify with you in your weaknesses, in your limitations, in your, in your struggles. Right? He doesn't understand sin because he didn't sin, but, but he, understands your, he understands what it means to be human. And, and because of that, because he sympathizes with that, because he identifies with that, because he understands that, he invites us, if you look back at that passage in Hebrews chapter 4, Verse 16, he invites us to draw near to him. Here's what it says, Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Show of hands, anybody ever been in a time of need? Yeah, universal experience, right? Ever been like, like paralyzed by your own weaknesses, your own failures, your own insecurities, your own inadequacies, your own limitations. We've all been in that place. And, and Emmanuel, God with us, that Jesus knows what it's like. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And he invites us to come to him to find mercy and to find grace that is available to us in our time of need. Right? In your limitations, in your struggle, in your loss, in your mourning, in your grieving, in your pain, your rejection, in those experiences that you feel as a human being where you're just like, I don't know what to do. Jesus says, come. Come. Receive mercy. Receive grace to help you in your need. Right? And, and I love it. It says come with confidence. Right? We, we don't have to sort of like sheepishly or sort of passively show up and be like, oh, I need a little help. It says come boldly. Come with, with confidence to ask for help. But not only did God become uh, a, a man to dwell among us, and identify with his people, ultimately, ultimately God became man in the form of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Ultimately, God became man to save his people from their sins. Right, if you go back to the angel's words in Matthew 
1, look at verse 21. This is the angel's announcement to Joseph. It says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people <clears throat> from their sins. Right, earlier, we, we briefly talked about the name uh, Christ as the Messiah. Right? We talked about Emmanuel, what it means that God is with us and understands us and sympathizes with us. But there's another name here, the angel that, or the name that the angel tells Joseph to, to name this child, which he goes on and obediently follows through with, the name Jesus. So um, I, I don't know if you ever, we kind of do this in our life group on Friday night. Um, we talk in our home sometimes about our names. I don't know if you've ever done this, kind of the significance of your name, like what your name actually means. Maybe you've never done it. Maybe you don't even know what your name means. You should Google it sometime. Just not right now because I'm preaching. Um, when you get home, right, just Google it. But one of the things that we talk about in our home is uh, what our names mean. Right? And so um, Owen, my, my oldest, he's down here. Um, what's up, o? His name means young warrior. Okay? So, so hold on to that, young warrior. And then when our second born came along, Henry, his name means uh, ruler of household. So we have a young warrior, and we have a ruler of the household. We did not really think through the implications of that. To, to quote contemporary philosopher Michael Scott, we did not have enough hindsight. Right? We should have had more. Because um, they often live into those names. Right, young warrior, ruler of household. That's why we named our third Elliot, which uh, means the Lord is my God. So um, that's her name. But anyway, here's where I'm going with this. Names are significant. They have meaning and purpose behind them. And, and that's the case with the name Jesus. Right? It, it's, it wasn't just a popular name in first century Nazareth. Right? The name Jesus, uh, it's actually a, uh, a form of the name Joshua. You're familiar with Joshua in the Old Testament? Jesus is a, a form of the name Joshua, or to go back to some of the original language, uh, Yeshua. All right, that's a fun name to say. That's, that's where Jesus comes from. But that name means uh, Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves, which means God saves. God is salvation. So when the angel tells Joseph, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. That God will save his people from their sins. Right? It's, it, it's not just something he does. Like This is his identity. This is what Jesus came to do. It's his purpose. Right? Jesus is the God who saves sinners. That's who Jesus is. And so the, the point of the incarnation... Right, the, the point of the whole Christmas story is, is not uh, just for God to come and spend 30 or so years hanging out with his people. As cool as that was, that's not the point. Right, the, the point, the, the birth of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, is the announcement that the Messiah has come. The promised Messiah has come to save God's people. And he, he didn't come to save them from their um, political enemies, their government, governmental oppressors, their, 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 the kingdoms of this world. That's not what he came to save them from. 
That's what they thought the Messiah was coming to do. But actually God had far more transcendent, far more eternal plans in mind. Because the angel said, you name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus came to do. The, The greatest threat to you is, is not really anything in this world. It is sin and death and hell and the schemes of the enemy. And this is what Jesus came to save you from. So as we move toward a, a time of response this morning, I've got just a couple of questions to kind of lay before you. All right, a couple of questions. And, and the first one is, is this. Just very simply, have you trusted in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin? Right, here's, we've bounced around in Scripture a lot this morning, I know. Here, here's what Paul writes about Jesus, his, his incarnation, his wrapping himself in flesh. This is what Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, catch this, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, talking about Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In in the person of Jesus Christ, God stepped out of eternity into his creation, wrapped himself in flesh. He was fully God, but he was fully human. And even though he was fully human, he lived a perfectly sinless life. We just read the passage about him uh, becoming obedient to the point of that he was perfectly obedient. The, The duration of his life, Jesus Never sinned. He, he perfectly fulfilled God's righteous requirements. And then in humility, Jesus goes to the cross as a substitute for you, for me. And there he absorbed all of God's wrath, all of God's, God's punishment, all of God's penalty towards sin. He, had, he absorbed it on himself on the cross. And then he was buried in a tomb. And then three days later, he walked out of the tomb to prove that the payment was complete and sufficient. Right? There's, there's nothing left for you to do except trust and believe. Right? There's, Christ has done all the work. Right? He, he was born. He lived a perfect life. He died. He rose again so that if you put your your faith and trust in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, you might have the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. And I don't know where where you are this morning, but if you've never done that, there's never been a time in your life where you've you've admitted your need for a Savior, where you've Place your trust trust in Jesus Christ. Ask him to save you from your sins. And I, I can't think of a better 
gift this Christmas season than to receive the gift of eternal life. If that's you this morning, I'd, I'd love to have that conversation with you, whether it's down front here in just a moment when the band sings, or maybe you're going to pull me aside after uh, the service is over this morning. But I would love to show you what it means to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Right, so have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? And then here's, here's the second question. And this kind of comes from that passage in Hebrews we looked at earlier. Do you need to receive mercy and grace to help you in your time of need? God has drawn near. He has dwelt among us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, with our limitations. He knows what it's like to be you. And and listen, he's not put off by it. And he, he, he knows you're weak. He knows you're inadequate. He knows you're limited. And he's not repulsed by it. And actually, if you're a child of God, he invites you in. He says, hey, come to me with confidence to receive mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. And so <clears throat> that's what I encourage you to do this morning. If you're here and there's just like some space in your life where you're just like empty, right? Maybe it's, maybe you need help with, with dealing with uh, pain, suffering, right? You need healing. There, maybe it's, it's loss that you feel this time of year. Maybe it's uh, temptation and struggle. Maybe it's rejection. Maybe it's relational uh, tension that you feel. Man, maybe you're just tired, Whatever your need is this morning, the good news of of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is that he he sympathizes with your weakness and he invites you to come and and seek help in your time of need. So I just encourage you to do that this morning. Whether whether you need to come to an altar and pray, whether you need to ask somebody to pray with you, whether you just want to pray quietly in your seat, know that he's invited you to come with confidence and boldness to receive help in your time of need. Right, so let me ask you to, to bow your heads this morning. <clears throat> I just want to do this really quickly and then we're going to pray. If you would say, hey, that, I, I feel that. I'm in a time of need this morning. It could be anything, anything I said or, or even anything I didn't say. If you just say, like, I have a need this morning, would you just raise your hand? All right. I know we're Baptists, but you don't got to be scared to raise it up high. Okay? Perfect. All right, let me pray for you this morning. Um, Pray for us this morning. The band's going to come and lead us. If you'd like to come pray, we'd be here in front. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, I'd love to have a conversation with you if you want to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you... Lord, you stepped out of eternity into this world. Um, first and foremost, foremost, to save us from our sin. We thank you for the promise of salvation in Christ alone. We thank you for uh, the, the forgiveness of 
sin that separates us from you or that you took that on yourself. You, you solved the problem. You bridged the gap yourself. There's nothing left for us to do. We don't work our way to you. You came to us. We thank you and praise you for that this morning. And if there's someone here this morning that's, that's never trusted in you, that's never received the gift of salvation, I pray that today might be that day that you give them the, the courage and the boldness to, or to cry out to you, to admit their sin, to confess their sin, to cry out for, to you as a Savior. Give them the boldness to start a conversation with someone. <clears throat> pray that today might be a day of salvation for some, Lord. And, and then for others, for many in this room that just raised their hands and said, I have a need. Lord, I, I don't know what their needs are, but I trust that you do. Lord, you know, their, you, know the, you know them at the depths of their souls, Lord. You know the deepest needs. You know the needs that they have that maybe they're not even aware of. So I pray that, that in this time where, where we, we see your promise to, to come and to seek mercy and grace to help us in our time of need, I pray that, that these men, these women, these children would know that they can come with, with confidence and boldness because you love them, because you care for them. I pray they would cast their burdens on you, that you might give them whatever it is their soul needs, peace, strength, courage, healing. Father, you know, and I ask that you would provide it this morning. So, Father, we love you. We praise you. Um, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.